Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Sri Lanka is deep in the midst of a devastating economic crisis. And after months of protests that culminated and demonstrators taking over the homes of the president and prime minister last weekend. One by one, people stream in, taking photos, resting up, working out or taking in a swing. Millions of Sri Lankans finally got what they wanted. President Gotabaya Rajapaksa is gone. Gotabaya Rajapaksa has finally resigned as the president of Sri Lanka. He's appointed Prime Minister Ranul Wickremesinghe as acting president, and protesters are demanding that he go too, but they've let go of most of the buildings they were occupying. So today we stand here as an Aragalia state, and we state that we are peacefully withdrawing from most of these buildings, except the old parliament and the golf face. We will continue to stay in these spaces. We will continue to protest until we reach the goals of our struggle. Back in April, we told you the story of the Rajapaksas, a powerful family dynasty in Sri Lanka who most people blame for the situation the country's in now. Billions of dollars in debt and dealing with severe shortages of everything from gas to medicine. This week, we went back to Aritha Wickramasinghe, a banking lawyer who had previously worked for the Treasury Board, and we talked to him about what's next for the country. What comes after a revolution? Later in the show, we're bringing you a second story about a ripple effect of the war in Ukraine, the gas shortage in Europe. A pipeline from Russia to Germany is down right now for scheduled maintenance, but politicians across Europe are really worried that Russia might not turn it back on. We'll get into why and what that could mean for people this winter. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hi, Artha. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Tamara. Thanks for having me again. So last weekend, protesters stormed the presidential secretariat, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's residence. They set the prime minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe's residence on fire, forcing them both to announce that they're resigning. I was watching this all unfold over the weekend and following reactions from people outside of the country. And a lot of people found it really inspiring um, how Sri Lankans had come together in this way and that they still managed to have this sense of humor about the whole situation. Look at this dude in the kitchen making curry. <laughs> the best part of this picture, though, is actually in the, in the, in the back right. You see a bunch of nuns there. So <laughs> 
They were swimming in the president's pool, play fighting on the bed. And it looked kind of like a party at times more than a riot. What was it like for you to watch these scenes and what are the images that will stay with you? This was and has always been from the beginning a very peaceful protest. Uh, There were some references, especially in Western media and also in Eastern media, describing the protesters as a mob. And that I think is a very incorrect way of referring to a movement which enjoys the support of the whole country uh, as anything but a peaceful protest. It's more than a protest. It's got this festival environment there. There's a cinema, there's a library, there's a place for art exhibitions, uh, there's an equality tent with a rainbow flag flying, ensuring representation for the LGBTIQ community. Uh, There's even a nightclub. You know, a place where people go Mm -hmm. dancing at night to political slogans. You know, it's such a vibrant space and a place. It's almost got that sort of 60s Woodstock feeling. And what happened Mm -hmm. on the 9th of July, you know, it was inspiring. It was, in a way, a relief that we were able to finally... Uh, chase away this man and this family, which has unfortunately bankrupted our nation. Uh, there are various evidence of uh, security forces beating protesters, firing at protesters, were firing at walls, but using live ammunition. But the response was always peaceful and far less than proportionate to what was used. You know, it was really nice to see that kind of taking over that presidential palace, uh, occupying it, respecting Uh, the fact that this is a historical place, uh, but also having some fun, you know, in it. You know, people are going, families are going there for picnics, you know, entertaining visitors who are coming to see this place, which really had not opened its doors to the public uh, in its, you know, 300-year-old history. It's the first time the public actually got to see where their leaders are living. And I think that is quite revolutionary. They are not anyone's private properties. They are people's properties and people have a right to occupy. But obviously these protests have been going on for months. It seems like something tipped things over the edge for people to storm all three of these buildings this way. And I wonder, what do you think compelled people to do that on Saturday? I mean, Saturday also was three months since the first protest started off. And it was two months since the attack by the former Prime Minister Mahindra Rajapaksa uh, on the main protest site in Colombo. But also in the last two weeks, the economic situation in Sri Lanka has deteriorated quite rapidly. Sri Lankan locals expressed their desperation over food shortages on Friday as the country continues to battle a crippling economic crisis. There's been absolutely no fuel available. Uh, There's been no delivery of fuel and gas shipments to the country. Uh, Whereas earlier you had reports of people queuing for petrol or diesel for maybe five to 10 hours. People are now queuing for 10 days. Mohammed Shazli is one of those waiting in line. 
his third day of queuing in the hope of cooking for his family of five. So without gas, we can't do anything. Without carosinol, we can't do anything. Can you imagine being in a queue for five to ten days just to get a little amount of fuel in order for you to survive? Last week, there was um, a parliamentary session where the president was also present. And there were pictures and images of him laughing in parliament when questions were raised about the economic situation. So that also angered people more that this man was also not sensitive to their pain and suffering. So I think a combination of these efforts is really what led to uh, Saturday. Artha was at the main protest site when President Rajapaksa officially resigned on Thursday. He sent us videos of people celebrating, singing, dancing, waving the Sri Lankan flag. Rajapaksa sent his resignation letter from Singapore. That's where he ended up after initially fleeing to the Maldives. He tried several times to escape through the civilian airport, the main airport in Colombo, uh, but that was denied to him because a lot of immigration officers went on strike and refused uh, to let him go through. And even the planes, I think a lot of the passengers were quite angry as well. So at the end, he was escorted on a military, on an Air Force uh, aircraft and was taken to the Maldives. It is believed that he left the country before his resignation to avoid losing his immunity and possibly being arrested. His decision to leave has angered protesters. Now that President Rajapaksa has officially resigned, Parliament will have 30 days to elect his replacement. Politicians have also been talking about forming an all-party government, but protesters don't want that. They're demanding an interim government for a maximum period of one year. Definitely, I think in order to resolve this political crisis, we need to go in for a fresh general election. The current parliament has lost its legitimacy in the eyes of the people. Over two-thirds of the current parliament actually comprises members of the president's party. And that party, along with the president, is of course seen as being responsible for our present uh, economic uh, and political collapse. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the situation people are in right now is really difficult, and it doesn't seem like there is any immediate signs of relief. Um, we've seen scenes of people desperately trying to flee the country by boat. Just a few days ago, the Sri Lankan Navy stopped these people trying to get to Australia. More than 300 have attempted to leave on boats in the past month. Do you know anyone who's trying to leave? And is that something that you've considered yourself? I know several people who want to leave. Almost every day I get messages from either friends or acquaintances asking how they can get a visa to move abroad and leave this country. I actually got married a few weeks ago to my Irish husband now in the UK. Uh, and we moved, we came back uh, after our, our wedding. And a lot of people asked us, you know, uh, why aren't you staying behind? And my response is, this is my country. I'm not going to run away from it. And as much as I understand the plight of people and why they want to leave, 
um, I feel it is also important for people like me who have certain privileges uh, in order to stay behind and make our contribution to our recovery. You know, I grew up in this country during the Civil War. Uh, I saw lots of people leave during that time, especially friends uh, and people from the Tamil community. Uh, people were fleeing in boats. And we are seeing these same images now. It's heartbreaking because this is a country which has always had so much promise. And we really shouldn't be here. You know, we should yeah. be somewhere better. The thing that I also find really heartbreaking about this whole story is that Sri Lanka was doing so well. It was building a stable, prosperous economy. I went there for a friend's wedding in 2017. And I remember thinking, compared to Bangladesh, where I'm from, there's like so much uh, investment in infrastructure. Obviously, every place has its issues. But uh, friends of mine who are Sri Lankan have just been stunned watching the country fall apart like this. How hopeful are you that Sri Lanka can get back on that track? I'm very hopeful that we can get back on track. But I think we also need to be prepared to the pains of economic reform that will require us to get back on track. We are a resilient people. Uh, we have gone through, you know, terrible times. We've gone through centuries of occupation by foreign powers. We were able to remove them. Uh, we have uh, gone through civil war. We've gone through two, two socialist Marxist uprisings and we have overcome and we have shown that resilience. And, you know, Sri Lankan people have very high levels of education here, very high levels of literacy. People will eventually understand that they need to make certain sacrifices in order to restart our country. So I'm quite hopeful that within the next few years, we'll see you know, if the right decisions are made and if the right leadership is there uh, that will make a successful recovery. Sri Lanka has been in talks with the IMF for a loan, but it might take a while because of the ongoing political crisis. And even if that loan is finalized, the money might not come until next year. But Aritha is hopeful that the guarantee of an IMF loan will help the country get money from other sources in the short term. Uh, there will still be, you know, queues for essentials. There will still be power cuts. It just won't be as bad as it is. And hopefully by next year, we'll see some, you know, stronger stabilization. And, um, and then, you know, we'll have to start our reform journey immediately. So the one other question I wanted to ask you was, the thing that protesters have been demanding for months is the ouster of the Rajapaksa family, who have been this powerful political force in Sri Lanka, who've been running the country for many, many years. Do you think this is the last we'll see of them? Or do you worry that they'll find a way to bounce back, as we've seen happen in other countries like the Philippines, for example? You know, many people do compare the Rajapaksas to the Marcoses. But I think one critical difference between the two is that when Marcos was uh, thrown out as the dictator of the Philippines, 
he did not bankrupt the country in that process. The Philippines' freedom struggle was for more democracy and for more accountability. And that was what, you know, led to his removal. It's very, very different to the Rajpaksas. Uh, they have bankrupted this country. They have thrown millions of people into poverty and desperation. So I think it would be very difficult for them to return or to rebrand themselves. But I think in order to prevent not just the Rajpaksas, but I think any form of dynastic rule or authoritarian rule or these terrible economic decisions, it's very important that we do change our education curriculums so that history and modern political history is taught to children in schools. Now in Sri Lanka, History stops in schools in 1948 when we earned it, when we gained independence from the British. So Sri Lanka students, including myself, were never taught uh, how our civil war started, that we, we had two Marxist uprisings, that we had all these race riots. None of that information is given to students. If we don't teach our history, we are going to repeat our mistakes. We need to ensure that future generations know the mistakes that we made and know who caused it so that they won't allow someone like that to come again. Artha, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. Granted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly... Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. So for our second story this week, we're in Germany. Politicians there are waiting to see if Vladimir Putin is going to decide to completely cut off their access to Russian gas on Monday. Most European Union countries have said that moving away from Russian gas is a priority in the wake of the war in Ukraine, but some countries like Germany and France still rely on it. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline moves that gas under the Baltic Sea to Germany, and it was shut down this week for scheduled maintenance work. It's supposed to be turned back on next week, but Germany's economy minister is concerned about a quote-unquote nightmare scenario if Russia decides against turning it back on. I'm talking to Bloomberg's Frankfurt bureau chief, Christoph Rowald, and I asked him why European leaders believe that Russia is likely to do this. Well, we have seen over the past few weeks and months really that uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin have used uh, energy as like a strategic measure to uh, react to other countries where he thought that they are supporting Ukraine, basically. Uh, one example is Poland. Gazprom, the Russian state gas company, is cutting off natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria, saying it is suspending pipeline shipments because those two countries are refusing to pay in rubles, something Vladimir Putin has demanded in a movement to counter economic sanctions targeting Russia's economy. So it does seem likely that there could be 
some sort of deliberation on the Russian side of things to use that to discourage Germany from supporting Ukraine. Yeah, and Russia denies that they've been doing this, even though in recent months, Russian gas flows through the Nord Stream pipeline have stopped by around 60%. Yeah, they dropped quite uh, significantly. And Russia has claimed uh, that this was largely due to to technical issues, uh, lack of turbines that had to be sent to maintenance. Uh, but uh, th- that assumption has been, uh, well, facing pretty strong backlash from uh, several Western political leaders and, and company officials who basically said this was no technical rationale behind that. It was just purely a political motivation. Yeah, interesting. And, and I want to come back to that argument in a bit. But what is at stake if Russia doesn't turn the pipeline back on? What would that mean for Germans in the short term? It would definitely send up uh, energy prices even higher. Already consumers are facing pretty substantial uh, increases in their uh, energy contracts. Sometimes some gas contracts have doubled, other countries tripled. And that trend would actually continue and, and, and intensify. What Germany is trying to do at the moment is they, uh, they, they need to refill the gas storage, the, the main gas storage, from currently about 64, 65% to about 90% by the end of October. Uh, that's important to have enough gas to basically get through the winter during the summer, like people don't heat their homes. Right. And if Russia doesn't turn the pipeline back on, I've read that Germany might have to move to level three of its emergency gas plan. And that would mean that the regulator basically has to decide how to ration gas across the country. Is that right? Yeah. And it basically means that the grid regulator in Germany decides who gets energy and who doesn't. The consumers, the private households, they're prioritized along with critical infrastructure like hospitals, uh, police, So they do get energy supplies as a priority. Uh, At the same time, they will try to then uh, reduce energy supplies to some uh, parts of the industry, which then if not in a direct capacity, but in an indirect capacity also affects people because it puts jobs at risk, basically. As we speak, many of like the leisure activities, swimming pools, saunas, for example, they have already been reduced or shut down entirely. And also in some areas of Germany, We've seen that municipalities basically moved to dim the streetlights, for example, to save energy. So there's like a a pretty wide range uh, of potential measures to save energy. But all these would not be enough if there would be an abrupt cutoff of Russian gas imports. Yeah. So we touched on this earlier, but Russia denies that it's using oil and gas as leverage in the war. And Vladimir Putin's been blaming the sanctions against Russia for energy prices. In recent months, Russia cut gas flows through the Nord Stream 1, and they said that it was because they were waiting for a turbine that was being serviced by Siemens in Canada to be returned. And Canada just made the controversial decision to return the turbine, despite the Ukrainian government saying that this amounts to adjusting the sanctions against Russia. President Zelensky didn't pull his punches in his address to the nation tonight, saying it's just a shame to see people lacking the courage to honestly deal with the turbine issue. He called Canada's decision unacceptable and said it will be read in Moscow as a manifestation of weakness. It's been controversial here with Ukrainian advocacy groups, but the Canadian government's been defending the decision, saying that this would help Europe have reliable access to energy as they try to transition away from Russian gas. Remember that those sanctions are aimed not at our allies, but at Putin and his cronies. So I'm wondering, 
as this continues, could you see more EU sanctions being lifted if things get really bad? That matter is still sort of far from being resolved. They're working to get the turbine from Canada to Germany. But mm-hmm. um, then as a, as a second step, Germany would then have to find a way to get the turbine from Germany to the place at the, at the Nord Stream 1 pipeline without breaching any sanctions, which I would suspect oh. would also uh, cause some political discussions over potentially bypassing the sanctions, which is definitely an impression that the German government will try to avoid or prevent. I think at the moment, the, the strong political motivation is basically to stick to the sanction and potentially even intensify them. But if the result of those are that Europe's biggest economy is faltering and the region doesn't have like the economic muscle anymore to uphold the sanctions, then it could end up in a scenario where Russia basically gets away with what they did in, 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 the, in the Ukraine. So they need to be able to design the sanctions in a way that they can uphold them over a longer period of time rather than having any sort of like sudden movements which basically do more harm to the countries that impose the sanctions than the actual target of the sanctions. You said earlier that Germany is currently trying to up their gas reserves to 90% capacity by this fall. And even if Russia does turn this pipeline back on on the 21st, there is this risk of a gas shortage in the future. With winter just a few months away, how is Germany preparing for the possibility of a gas shortage in the long term when it gets really cold? Like, how are they trying to up these gas reserves right now? They are at the moment looking for alternative imports um, and also other sources of energy. At the moment, they're trying to uh, step up plans to import more LNG, for example, from Norway, from the US. They're in talks with Qatar, also about LNG supplies. But the switch basically from the current setting in terms of energy imports uh, to like the new setting is something that, uh, and I think that's also something that like political leaders came to realize, is that you can't sort of reverse like 20, 25 years of policy making, which created the situation in a matter of days or weeks. This makes the situation so uh, difficult to navigate for policymakers that they don't have enough time basically to get the alternatives to Russian gas up quickly enough for winter season. The federal government also is like urging consumers and citizens to just be mindful about their energy consumptions. And just to wrap up, I know we don't have like a crystal ball here to predict whether or not Russia is going to turn this pipeline back on. But I wonder if you have thoughts on what might happen and what's the feeling in Germany right now? Like how how worried are people about this as a possibility? Um, I think people are, are very worried and I think actually they should be because it's a pretty direct threat and it would basically affect everyone. I don't have the crystal ball. I think the only person actually knows what's going to happen is probably Putin himself. Uh, but I would, I would be surprised if, um, if the maintenance work is over and we're back at 100% of energy supplies. Even if he doesn't cut off the supplies entirely, if he reduces the import rate, uh, that could still have a pretty significant effect on the economy and also on consumers as well. Christoph, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So just before we wrap up, a quick note that we did cover the origins of the economic crisis in Sri Lanka on the show back in April. And it's definitely worth a listen if you want to understand how the country ended up in this situation. 
That episode is called United and Protest, Sri Lankans Fight a Political Dynasty, and you can find it in our feed. And that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Yvette Sin. Our showrunner is Joyta Shengupta. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.